You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. To the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Be reading verses 1 through 16. Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 16. When Yahweh your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when Yahweh your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your souls from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of Yahweh would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars, dash in pieces their pillars, and chop down their Asherim, and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to Yahweh your God. Yahweh your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It's not because you are more in number than any other people that Yahweh set His love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because Yahweh loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers, that Yahweh has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore, That Yahweh your God is God. The faithful God. Who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. And He repays to their face those who hate Him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates Him. He will repay Him to His face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. And because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, Yahweh your God will keep with you the covenant and steadfast love that He swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock in the land that He swore to your fathers to give give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your livestock. And Yahweh will take away from you all sickness and none of the evil diseases of Egypt which you knew will He inflict on you but he will lay them on all who hate you. And you shall consume all the peoples that Yahweh your God will give over to you. Your eyes shall not pity them, neither shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, who is like you, a God rich in mercy and grace, calling us out of darkness and into your light, and have mercy on us, Father, for the Canaanite that we've tolerated 
in our own hearts. Forgive us for how we have allowed the world to propagate inside your church. Forgive us of the idols that we've left erected and the covenants that we've entered into that are a betrayal of our covenant with you. Grant us obedient hearts today to repent, to live as your holy and chosen people, to be a faithful bride to our redeeming Lord Christ, your Son. Father, reveal something of the marvel of who you are to us today. And thus, because of who you are, who we now are. So that with fresh eyes we would see this world and understand how we are to relate to her. Send your spirit. In Christ's name we plead. Amen. Here we have an exhortation that's grounded in a revelation that's followed by an explanation. That's the gist of our text. The exhortation, the charge is, destroy the Canaanites. And the revelation concerns who Israel is. That command, destroy the Canaanites, is rooted and grounded in this revelation of who Israel is. And who Israel is, is rooted in this revelation of who God is. And this is then followed by an explanation that obedience to God's commands, in particular this command, will mean blessing, fruitfulness in the land God has given them. Let's say it another way. You have here a charge given to the covenant people of God. And that charge is rooted in the revelation of who they are as the covenant people of God. Their identity as covenant people. And their identity as as being the covenant people of God is naturally rooted in this revelation that we have here of who their covenant God is. And this is all so that in obedience to His covenant commands, they might enjoy His covenant blessings in the covenant land. Or let me state it one more way building from the ground up. Who God is determines who Israel is and thus who the Canaanites are. All of this is loaded with significance not only for Israel, but for us today who partake of the fullness of everything that's held forth here in promise, this covenant of promise that we are no longer strangers to in Christ. Unfortunately, though, this is the very kind of text that many Christians are embarrassed by, and so they're shy to really take it up, to plunge into it, to hold it forth. Many who would profess that the Word of God is indeed the Word of God, Holy Scripture. Many who would profess that would shy away from such a text thinking this is an easy one for the world to take pot shots at. But rather than being embarrassed, we should laugh because we know whatever it is that they think they're hitting, the Bible is nowhere near downrange. Bible assassins will speak of the injustice of the conquest of Canaan. They might compare this holy war, truly 
a holy war, to the jihad of Islam. Or they might liken it to the genocide of the Tutsi in Rwanda. But you can't shoot at those apples and think that you're hitting the Bible's oranges. You've got to read the Bible on its own terms. If what it says is true, then what is happening here is utterly different. Whenever you read the Bible on its own terms, what you find is this comes consistently as part of an utterly unique story that sets it apart from any of those other examples. When you read the Bible in its own terms, the first things you have to come to grips with is that our God, this God, is creator, and thus, He's sovereign. As Jeremiah put it, He's the potter, we're the clay, Jeremiah 18. And so as the sovereign potter, His pot, He's free to make as He pleases, and He's free to destroy and break as He pleases. He is sovereign over every pot made and every pot smashed. He gives, He takes away. He opens the womb, He closes the grave. He forms us in our mother's womb. He numbers every one of our days, and He appoints the day of our death. He's Lord. And so while man may be sinful in taking life, Our God is never sinful in using one sinner to end the life of another sinner. Every soul that lives even a minute on this earth enjoys incredible mercy and grace from our God. Because all any of us deserve is an eternal hell. So the conquest of Canaan must not be seen as an issue of ethnic genocide, nor is it really anything of one people thinking that their religion is superior and thus makes them superior to another people of a different religion. This is the holy God of heaven bringing His judgment to bear on wicked nations. God does this. Verse 1, when Yahweh your God brings you into the land and clears away many nations before you, and when Yahweh your God gives them over to you, God does this. He does it in mercy towards Israel. He does it in judgment on the Canaanites. Soon Moses will go on to say, do not say in your heart, after Yahweh your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that Yahweh has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas, it is because of the wickedness of these nations that Yahweh is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart, are you going in to possess their land? But because of the wickedness of these nations, Yahweh your God is driving them out before you, and that He may confirm the word that Yahweh swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Deuteronomy 9, 4-5. through D.A. Carson warns, It may be true to say that the Israelites won because the Canaanites were so evil. It does not follow that the Canaanites lost because the Israelites were so good. What the Canaanites now taste of was previewed with the destruction of Sodom. You remember how God disclosed to Abraham what his plans were with Sodom. And Abraham, naturally with his nephew Lot living there, pleaded with the Lord saying, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Genesis 18. And then he pled, If there are 50, 
will you spare the city? 45, 30, 20, 10. If there are just 10 righteous souls, will you spare that city? And the sovereign Lord agrees. And there are not 10. And yet, God in mercy rescues. Who the New Testament refers to as righteous Lot. Out of that city. Before he destroys it. The Lord of heaven and earth does what is just. And what is right. Such is the land promised to Abraham as a whole. Not a sliver of it deserving God's judgment, but the whole of it. God told Abraham, Israel is not to possess this land until the fourth generation. He gives this explanation in Genesis 15. Because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Now it's full. This land is full of sinners whose sin is full. This is, this is not simply judgment on nations who are wicked. This is judgment on nations whose wickedness is complete. It's full. Such that Leviticus 18 speaks of their iniquity being so great that the land vomits them out. God does this. Yes, you say, but my problem is that He uses Israel to do it. That, that's where the real rub is. It's Israel who defeats the, the Canaanites. It's Israel who's commanded by God to devote them to destruction. God uses a million methods to kill a million different men every day. He's sovereign. He's the potter. We're the clay. If he uses one of his own pots to smash another of his own pots, they're his pots. Such an objection not only fails to take into account the sovereign, righteous, and holy God and our just deserts before him, it fails to take into account the utterly unique position of Israel at this time. Israel was and will forever be the only people ever established as a geopolitical state existing as a theocracy. God was their king. Their army was his army. They were his sword. God in His sovereignty has organized nations to wield the sword, Romans 13. They have that authority to deal with evil. And Israel as a nation is His sword as a nation here against these nations. David marveled at the utterly unique privilege Israel enjoyed saying, Who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be His people, making Himself a name, doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. There's nothing else like this. But ultimately, what lets you know that pot shots against this text aren't hitting anywhere near the text. They aren't hitting anywhere near the Scriptures. They are, not, they are not denting in the least the character of our God. They are not scuffing with the slightest mar the righteousness of His ways and His commands. What lets you know that is that this act of judgment that God brings to bear on these nations is part of His plan for blessings to come to all the nations of the earth. Whenever the criticism comes against a text like this, that kind of part of the story is always left out. The criticism isn't dealt with 
dealing with the Bible as a whole. It's taking a particular part, mangling it, and making it to fit some iniquity that we find in this world. This is not the jihad of Islam. When God called Abraham to this very land to receive it as a promised inheritance, God said to him, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This judgment is towards that promise. This act of righteous judgment, this measured, specific, focused act of righteous judgment is part of a larger plan of unmerited grace to come upon all the peoples of the earth. So, with that, you can look at the command itself. See, this is not about ethnic genocide. It doesn't have anything to do with racial superiority. There's no place for pride here. The reason why Israel is to utterly destroy these nations is put in religious terms. Specifically, we'll see as it unfolds further, covenant terms. The Canaanites are being destroyed for their perverse idolatry, verse 5. She'll break down their altars, dash in pieces their pillars, chop down their Asherim, burn their carved images with fire. The stone pillars likely refer to the worship of Baal. The wood Asherim refer to the worship of Asherah. Uh, to, to put this in terms more familiar, think Astarte or, or Aphrodite. These, this has reference to the fertility cults that dominated the ancient world at this time. Earlier I referred to Leviticus 18, where it spoke of the land vomiting them out. When you read Leviticus 18 in the full, the bulk of that text is God commanding them not to practice various forms of sexual immorality. And it then concludes... Such were the practices of those whom the land is now vomiting out. I tell you what's really striking is you're reading all these commands that forbid various forms of sexual immorality and in the midst of it, there's a command not to offer up their children to Molech. You have here that they are to break down the stone pillars representing the male deity involved in these fertility cults. Chop down the wood Asherim representing the female deity involved in this. And then they're to break down the altars. And Leviticus 18 speaks of the particular altar in the same kind of context as being that of Molech. The bizarre, inconsistent, ludicrous idolatry of this world worships the fertility cults of Baal and Aphrodite and then offers up their offspring to Molech. Planned Parenthood is the temple of the sexual revolution. These gods are worshipped still and it's for the worship of such gods, such perverse idolatry that the land vomits out its inhabitants. These are the very sins that bring down God's judgment on a people. And so for this religious reason, for this gross, perverse idolatry, these nations are to be destroyed, but, but the, the religious tones of this command go both ways. This is, this is simply the negative aspect well, it's still negative even in this. The Israelites are not to make any covenant with them, and specifically they're not to enter into the covenant of marriage, lest their hearts be turned away and they be destroyed as well, verses 2 through 4. Then the anger of Yahweh would be kindled against you, and He would destroy you quickly. 
Israel is liable to the very judgment God is using her to dish out. There's no injustice with God here. It is the same measure. Israel's to destroy so that she be not destroyed. This act is to eliminate the wickedness of the Canaanites and to promote the holiness of his people Israel. Again, that's only, this is only the negative aspect, the, the full or the positive reason is seen in verses 6 through 10, and it concerns who Israel is and who she is concerns who her God is. Who is Israel? Verse 6, she is the holy and chosen of Yahweh. Holy at its most basic level doesn't involve moral purity. That's a derivative and secondary definition of what holiness is. Holiness foundationally means separate, set apart. She is God's. That's the idea. She is a holy people to her God. She's set apart from all the other peoples. She's wed in covenant to her covenant Lord. Here's the real explanation, the foundational level explanation of what Israel is doing here. She's not to enter into covenant, any kind of relationship with the Canaanites because she's in covenant with her Lord. She's not to tolerate their presence in her midst, not to enter into a kind of relationship with them, lest her heart be turned away from the one it's devoted to. This being holy is then synonymous with her being chosen uh, a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, verse 6. Because she's She's chosen as His. That is what it means that she's holy. She's not like these others. He's chosen her. They are His treasured possession. And why is this so? Why is Israel who she is? She isn't holy because she was holy. She is not set apart. Because she made herself stand out. It isn't because of who Israel was. That she's now become at this point who she is. Why is Israel a chosen nation? A holy nation? It's because of who her God is. Who her God is. Determines who she is. Who is their God? Know therefore that Yahweh, your God, is God. The faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commands to a thousand generations. When Moses asked to see God's glory, in a sense, to see the very essence, the, to see the godness of God. Yahweh said, you can't see that or you'll die. But, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And whenever Moses went back up on the mountain to receive the two tablets of the covenant, we read, Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation, Genesis 34, 6 through 7. This is who God is. He's the covenant-keeping God of Israel. His identity is bound up in His name. 
And it's a name that he's given to his people covenantally. There's, there's a sense in which she is his bride. She bears his name now. And the question that's being set up here, verse 7, is why did God set his love on her out of all the peoples? Why does she enjoy this unique position? It was not because you were more in number than any other people that Yahweh set his love on you. Not because you are more in number. This takes us back to verse 1. All these nations who are more numerous and mightier than you. And now he tells them, in reference to the other nations, it wasn't because you were something more than them, you were less. Why does God set his love on Israel? The answer that God gives in this passage is that he loves them Because He loves them. There's no answer to be found in who they are. The only explanation is to be found in who He is. He loves them because He loves them. Verse 7. It's not because you are more in number than any other people that Yahweh set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. So then, why did Yahweh set His love on them and choose them? Verse 8. It is because Yahweh loves you. Why does Yahweh love you? Because He loves you. Why did He choose you? Because He's keeping His oath, meaning He's keeping covenant. Why has He redeemed them out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, with a mighty hand by the blood of the Passover lamb? Why has He done so? Because of who he is. God is free to choose his own bride. And the reason for his choice of a people as his treasured possession out of all the peoples of the earth is not to be found in the people themselves. It's not to be found in us. We are all a mess of sinners. And the only answer to why There is mercy on any at all. Setting them apart is distinct and holy for himself. is to be found in God and who he is. Spurgeon wrote, I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born or else he would have never chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I could never find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. God is the covenant God of steadfast love, who in his free, sovereign goodness has mercy on whom he will have mercy. Some object that the doctrine of election smacks of arrogance, that it it fosters pride. It's just the opposite. It humbles. God chooses His people not because of who they are, but because of who He is. If the deciding factor that distinguished the saints from the wicked was their choice then there could be boasting and arrogance. What set me apart was me. But the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we only choose. We do choose. But we only choose because He chose us. This is why Jesus could say, To his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Or John writes in his first epistle, chapter 4 and verse 9, we love because he first loved us. Who Israel was, who the church is, is determined by who our God is. 
He is the covenant-making God, having mercy on whom He will have mercy. He's the covenant-keeping God whose steadfast love never ends. We did not propose to God. He proposed to us irresistibly so. We were not a catch. We didn't make ourselves stand out. He is loving us into beauty. Before His love, we were wretched, defiled, polluted, stained, unclean, guilty. But we've been washed by the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the new covenant. And we're being sanctified by the word of Christ. And because of who God is, and because of who they thus are, this is the conclusion that bears down upon them. This is the conclusion that bears down on us. Verse 11. You shall therefore... Be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. Spurgeon said, God's choice makes chosen men choice men. God does not call us because we are holy, but He assuredly does call us to holiness. Thomas Watson said that Sanctification is the earmark of Christ's sheep. They're marked by holiness. Grace has redeemed this people out of Egypt and is leading them to the land of promise and covenant faithfulness. But the way God leads them from Egypt to Canaan is through Sinai. And that's the way He leads us home still. Those who He freely redeems full of, uh, with, with unmerited grace, He leads them through Sinai to walk in His ways as He brings them home. The law does not bring them into covenant, but covenant gives them the law. And then with that law, brings them to the land of promise. God's love of redemption is covenant love calls for the covenant response of obedience. Remember how the ten words from the fire, the ten commandments, were prefaced by a historical prologue. I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Do you hear the implicit therefore? I am your God who redeemed you, therefore you shall have no other gods before me. The therefore is explicit here in verse 11. I am the covenant Lord. You are my covenant people. Therefore, be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. And specifically, the commandment that's in view here is to devote the Canaanites to destruction. It comes again in verse 16 and following the rest of the chapter. You shall consume all the peoples that Yahweh your God will give over to you. And should they obey this command, they will persist in enjoying God's covenant blessings. Now notice how many of these blessings are put in terms of fruitfulness. He will love you and bless you and multiply you. Do you see the covenant imagery that God is painting here? God's love for them, their faithfulness to them, Him, makes them fruitful as His bride. He will bless the fruit of your womb, the fruit of your ground, your grain, your wine, your oil, the increase of your herds, the young of your flock, and the land that He swore to give to your fathers to give you. It's because they failed to obey these commands, thinking that fruitfulness will come from Baal and Asherah, it's because they allowed, tolerated the Canaanites in their presence. Their hearts were led astray that exile would come to these people, that they, Israel, would be vomited out of the land. And you can hear the hiss of the serpent. You can hear Israel perverting the truth. 
whenever they reject Jeremiah's message. They tell Jeremiah, well, you have to realize that Jeremiah's ministry began near the end of Josiah's reign. And the people of Israel have enjoyed a revival, a reformation. But it dies with Josiah's death. And they return to their ways. And judgment begins to come upon Israel. And they tell Jeremiah. The reason this judgment is coming. Is because under Josiah. We stopped worshipping the queen of heaven. We stopped worshipping Asherah. They tell him. Jeremiah 44. As for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of Yahweh. We will not listen to you. But we will do everything we have vowed. Make offerings to the queen of heaven and pour out drink offerings to her. As we did both we and our fathers, our kings and our officials in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food and prospered and saw no disaster. But since we have left off making offerings to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her. We have lacked everything and have been consumed by the sword and by famine. But just as in the garden, when Israel believed this lie, the ground was cursed, and she's driven from it in exile. Saints, come out from among them before you're driven out. I believe this chapter is especially helpful in understanding the peculiar nature of the Mosaic Covenant. It's a national covenant. It's made with a geopolitical state. A people who, though they can be in covenant with God, yet they can be not in covenant with God. Just by virtue of of who they are, They're part of Israel and thus under this covenant. And yet, everything that this covenant is holding forth in its form, in shadows, in types, and in promise, they know nothing of it. They have the circumcision of the flesh and are part of the Mosaic covenant. But they don't have what's being spoken of there. They don't have the circumcision of the heart. And thus, they don't receive anything of the new covenant as as it's held forth in promise here. They have only the shadow, nothing of the substance. They are in a covenant, but they are not in the covenant. But for us, who enjoy the fullness of everything that's held forth here in Christ, what can we learn from this covenant of promise? First, learn who your God is. He is Yahweh. He is Jesus Christ, your Redeemer. He is God incarnate in the flesh, God the Son, become a Son of Man, the Christ, our prophet, priest, and King. He's the Redeemer, the Passover Lamb, whose blood is the blood of the new covenant by which we are cleansed. He is Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. On Sinai, it were as if with all the thunder and all the smoke and all the fire, it is as though God only there whispered, Yahweh. It is on Calvary that He pronounced most clearly, His name. Jesus is the clearest pronunciation of Yahweh. Of who our God is. Second, because of who they are, because of who their God is, learn who who we are. Because of who our God is, learn who we are. Peter put it this way. They stumble Because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you. 
are a chosen people, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 1 Peter 2, 8-10 Saints, we are who we are only and forever because of who our God is. We have been redeemed and we're journeying to the land of promise and saints, Sinai is still the way. Hebrews warns us, there is a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This is not because it merits you your ticket to heaven. This is because it is the earmark of all those who are Christ's lambs, as Watson said. It marks them out as being loved of God. It is the evidence of His love, not the cause of His love. It's the fruit of His love, not the root of His love. Third, because of who our God is and thus who we are, learn who they are. Jesus said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now, While Israel was to eradicate the Canaanites, they were also to be a light to the Gentiles. In church, we have the same kind of tension that we should feel. We're not a geopolitical state. The weapons of our warfare are not physical but spiritual. And yet we realize there is a war against our king. And thus a war against us. Fly your colors high. We were redeemed out of a rebellious people. And so we should long for others to see the salvation we've come to know. Oh God, save my neighbor, my friend, my co-worker, my family. Oh God, that, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down in a in the power of your spirit, and we would see your salvation. Long for that. Plead for that. The reason you want to be a light to the Gentiles, the reason you want to be distinct, the reason Israel here is is to destroy them so that they're distinct is for the purpose of being this light to the Gentiles. Be a holy people. Keep the war up for the purpose of longing to be this light through which God would draw those in darkness to His light. But supremely, we do love our King. And the longing of the saints is simply that our God would be God. That He would have mercy on whom He will. And that He would bring the salvation of His bride into fullness as He's promised just as it, it happens in a shadowy way here, that they would enter into the, we would enter into the fullness by judgment. And He promises that when that judgment comes, we will ride out with Him. We can be sure that in covenant faithfulness, as it's, it's demonstrated here, that so too, Our God will return again and bring us into our promised inheritance through judgment. He will make all things new. We will enjoy everything held out to Abraham in its fullness. Not in some shadowy way, but in its fullness. The earth made new will be the eternal inheritance of the meek made perfect in holiness. And forever, the boast of the covenant people 
And that place will be in our covenant Lord and He alone. Because we understand it was not because we were more in any way that He set His love on us and chose us. But it's because He loved us and He keeps covenant. Let's pray. Father, before the foundation of the world, You chose a bride to be covenantally bound in union an imperfect, wretched bride to be bound to your perfect, spotless Son. So that His righteousness would be counted as hers. As her sins are borne by your Lamb. This is the whole of our salvation. All of you planning our redemption, your son accomplishing it, your spirit applying it. All this is of you. And oh, what assurance we can then have. You will be faithful to your covenant. You've already given us your son. How will you not with us, with him, give us all things? And so, Father, reflecting on this, may this therefore lay heavy upon us. That we would walk in your ways, that we would walk before you in obedience and covenant faithfulness. And that as we journey to our home of promise, that we would know walking in your ways, your, your blessing and your grace are with us. Make us, Father, a holy people for the glory of your name, the salvation of your elect. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.